Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. It's good to be here, and it's good to be able to continue to go on in this series Excited about the opportunity to see some of you again. Excited about the opportunity to be able to uh, have a socially distanced fellowship as we navigate this uh, unique season of our lives. We'll never have a time like this again, uh, hopefully. Um, But we pray that um, this can be a benefit to many of you. As we've been traveling along in this series called Pillars, we created this series because we felt it was important to create for people imagery of what it means not only to be a growing Christian, but really what we as a church are looking for in leaders and in pastors. And really, uh, it's part of an overall development strategy that we've been praying through. As you know, any bridge that has the capacity to connect people who are disconnected need something underneath it, and those are pillars. And so this is the idea that these are the pillars of our church, and we are wanting people to represent those pillars. In other words, we want to produce pillar people. Praise God for those of you that were able to do the fast these 21 days with us. We pray that the devotional was a blessing to you. We pray that uh, whatever you fasted from uh, wasn't just as was just as important as what you fasted for. I pray that you heard the voice of the Lord. But I pray that you are becoming a pillar. We initially talked about prayerfulness as Rasul walked us through what it means to pray and seek God's face, and then we talked about being biblical and being an informed. Christian. Last week, I had the opportunity to preach on being grateful, and so many things flow out of our gratitude, being able to serve the living God, being able to just be in awe that the living God saw us fit to choose us and to care for us. But as we deal with this fourth pillar, we are talking about being unified, unified. Now, when I was a young child, my Uh, I'd come home after church, and my mom would be there with uh, my aunties, my fake aunties, uh, all of her friends, and they'd be sitting around, and you'd hear them kind of murmuring a little bit, and I'd walk into the room, and I'd sit down uh, just doing my own thing, listening in on the conversation. And then my mom would look over to me, and she'd say, now, what are you you doing in here? And I would say, well, I'm just hanging out. She says, no, 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 this is a grown folk conversation. Okay, so you, what you have to understand, baby, is that there's some things you won't understand. So you, you, you go back up in there because you, you won't understand that this is grown folk talk. The message that I want to give to you is distinctly a grown folk message. Uh, this is for the mature. And I, I mean that not to dissuade anyone in their growth. What I'm saying is everyone loves the benefits of unity. Very few people pay the cost to make it happen. In the same way that you would enjoy the fire in a fireplace, someone's got to cut the wood. Someone's got to go out and do the sacrifice in order to create the warmth in the room. Everybody likes the warmth in the room, but not everyone creates it. 
It is the mature believer that creates a unified community. They pay the sacrifice. They do the work. They have the conversations. They make the phone calls. They do the text messages. They create the gatherings, and they make sure that we're all on the same page. Unity. And what I'm talking about when I talk about unity is godly unity. There is a distinction between unity and godly unity. Uh, The goal of fellowship oftentimes is presumed to be intimacy, and that it is not. The goal of fellowship is holiness, not just intimacy. It means that we are intimate with each other, but at the same time, we are intimate with God. And the mature folks ensure that we are all walking in the light of God, in the life of God, in the word of God. In Genesis, we see this unique moment historically in the church. Um, well, in the, in really in the, in the, in the earth. Um, people decided that they wanted to come together and do something great. In Genesis chapter 11, they noted these people before there were languages, many of them. Uh, it says that they wanted to create a tower that reached the heavens. And in addition to that, it says they wanted to make a name for themselves. So really what was happening was the people at the time wanted to do something great, impactful and powerful. And think about this. They wanted to reach, to have a tower to go all the way up into the heavens. Historians and scholars would say that maybe they wanted to be astrologers, but in some way they wanted to reach up to God. And the text says in Genesis chapter 11, behold, They are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing, nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. In light of that, the text says that God said, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. What the Lord was saying is, look at what these people's potential are. They, nothing that they purpose to do together will be impossible for them because they're the same people and they have the same language. They're on the same page. Everyone agreed. And it was this agreeableness that caused them to have this exponential power. That's what happens when more than two and three come together. There's an exponential potential there. And God was very aware of this exponential dynamic because he's three in one. He knows the power of togetherness. And so he says, listen, we've got to go down there and confuse their language. We've got to disrupt the way that their unity works. What was the problem? The problem wasn't they, the problem wasn't in their agreeableness. Together, they came together and someone came to the makers of the bricks. They went to the makers of the bricks and they said, do you agree we should build a tower? And they said, yeah. And they went to the construction workers and they said, do you agree that we should construct something? Somebody said, yeah. And then there was somebody probably making a blueprint. And they said, do you agree we should have a blueprint? And they said, yeah. And they went and checked out if they could have all this agreeableness amongst them. And they saw if everyone agreed, except for one person. They weren't sure if God agreed. See, someone in the room has got to make sure, what are we doing to make sure God agrees with our unity? 
There's always the potential that unity can go in the wrong direction. Particularly in a church, there can be people who have come together and decided we agree, but no one's asking, does God agree with us? It is the mature person in the room. It's the theological adult in the room that asks the question, is the revealed mind of God in line with what we're thinking? I know that we agree, but does God agree with us? Because I can tell you this, no matter how much you agree, you have great potential, but if God is for you, nothing can stop you. The Bible says, what shall we say then if God is for us? Who can be against us? Oh, the unity that agrees with God has exponential potential from the human condition, but then when the supernatural meets the exponential of the natural, changes happen, lives are changed, cities are changed, yokes are broken, and chains are released. Oh, whole cities change when God agrees with you in your agreeableness. The question in the room, does God agree? And there's only there's a certain type of person that does that. And that, that can be you. But in order for you to be that person, you must know the revealed mind of God. You must be a prayerful person, a biblical person, a grateful person. And that leads you to be a unified person. I can find people who pray. I can find people who read the Bible. I can find people that are so great. I mean, oh, God, did he did it for me. You don't know what he's done. I mean, the things he's done. There are people who just have so much gratitude. But it's a minority group of the grown folk who actually make sure that the voice of God is being heard in the room? Does God agree? That's the question we have to ask. Now, in considering this text we're going to look at, um, oftentimes this text is only understood in the guise of confrontation, but I believe that there's a greater picture being drawn here as we look not only at the beginning part, but also the end. Matthew 18, verse 12, we see the context of this passage. Uh, it says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Now, Jesus is going to, in verse 15, talk about a brother sinning against you. But the context of this is a sheep wandering away from the fold and how Jesus goes and pursues wandering sheep. I think it sets us up for the kind of attitude that we should have. Far too often we think about confronting sin and we think of confrontation as our ability to oppose a person in sin as opposed to coming around someone who's wandering, as opposed to restoring someone who needs care, as opposed to coming and giving a revealed mind of God to someone who may be confused, maybe doing something that is hurting not only you, but hurting God. And it hurts you that they're hurting God. And so you chase them down like sheep. You don't hunt them down. So that's that context in mind that in Matthew 18, 15, he, he, our Lord Jesus, is now going to tell the church how to respond when we disagree with one another. Notice he says, if your brother sins against you, so this is particularly Christian, go and tell him his fault between him and him alone. Somebody say alone. alone. <laughs> Amen. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. What we 
have to understand is there is, you, you don't have to be Christian to understand this. You can be hood and understand this. There, there's nothing distinctly Christian about saying, if I've got a problem with you, that I want to talk to you about it alone. But I think that what we have to understand that this, this text is not only intended to be um, based upon how relational sins are affecting us, I believe that this text can also be understood in the context of just someone simply sinning, not just if they're sinning against you, but potentially if they've sinned against someone else. The, the essence of this then is aloneness, private. The private nature of this text speaks to the heartbeat of what we want to do. Remember, we're not hunting a person down. We're chasing someone down we care for. We're trying to restore someone. And so the spirit of private confrontation is gentleness. It's creating an atmosphere that they will hear me because the text repeats one idea if they listen. What would be the context by which they listen? How would they know I care for them? How will they be able to understand I'm not trying to debate, I'm not trying to argue, I just think there's something that you're, you're not in step with God, you're hurting the heart of God. God, yes, we don't agree, but, but what you're doing doesn't agree with God. Again, this is not just about a person that you have a preference that they aren't aligned with. This is a person who is in sin. And that means that you care about the wandering sinner. Galatians 6.1 says that, brothers, if anyone is caught in a, in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Notice in Galatians 6.1, there Paul makes a distinction about who will actually be doing this uh, activity. He says, you who are spiritual. Again, even Paul believes that this is a, there's a mature dynamic that comes with this. There's a courageous, a spiritual courageousness that comes with this. The word restore in Galatians 6 speaks to a medical term that is talking about resetting fractures or mending bones, putting a dislocated limb back in place. Much of how you confront someone is determined by the, the posture you have. If, you, if you're trying to break a bone or restore bones. If this is really about their repentance or your retaliation. See there that, that Paul is saying that there's got to be a gentleness. And Jesus is saying, consider this person almost like a sheep wandering. And we must realize that the, the nature of this is relational. And uh, all throughout the Bible, there are these verses called one another verses. Just in Romans, it says, love one another in brotherly affection. Uh, Romans 14, 13, don't pass judgment on one another. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony in one another. Don't be haughty. And in many ways, this is uh, acknowledging that a person has got out of step with a relational obedience. And so... It is because this text is particularly relational that we can get confused by this. Because we live in a day when we want to let people do their own thing, uh, live their own truth. Uh, don't let me bother you. Uh, you do you. And so because of that, there's a sense in which um, a church can grow when it makes people feel accepted. And that is also the trick of the devil. Yeah. 
to create a spirit of acceptableness. It is in that effort that we tend to make people feel accepted if we accept all that they do. And in that, we would be creating a picture of us agreeing with you, but does God agree? And so what, what, what Jesus says here is, in Matthew 15, here's the, one of the key parts. He says, if he listens to you, what's the goal? You have gained your brother or sister. You've gained them. Interestingly enough, the, the word gained, some of you in your Bibles have the word won. Uh, you, you've gained or you've won your brother. But gained is actually a better term here because the word is taken out of the marketplace. It, the word is actually used in the context generally of accumulating wealth, of having more than what you had before. Truly, it is then that if you were to truly value someone, then you would go towards the effort of gaining them because that means if they're sinning, you're losing them. It means our fellowship is losing them. That means there's an element of value lost when the brother or sister is wandering in sin. That means that we might seem like we're winning because we've got more people in the room, but we're losing in the eyes of God because we're allowing the sinner to wander. Gained. And, and this speaks to the true value of someone. Our culture believes that the essence of valuing you is letting you be you. And yet, while you've kept your peace with them, they are out of step with God. What you have to realize, again, for those that want to be in ministry, for those that want to do that which thus saith the Lord, know this, that peacekeeping is not the same as peacemaking that you can create a sense where we're, it's all good, you know, it feels good. And that's sometimes, all, honestly, sometimes I think we think the goal of being together is just to feel good. And we come in here and get inspiration. And yet, what, what we want can't be just for people to be free to be themselves. That is, in, at its core, a secular concept. Because... Anytime we are operating within a family dynamic, no one is free to be themselves. You grew up and you were not free to be yourself. Well, my, I just don't feel like going to school because that's just not me. Right? And it really, and, and this is the thing, this is the thing. As a good brother or sister, if you heard your sister or brother say, I'm not going to go to school because I don't want to be me, you're like, mama going to kill you. Daddy going to kill you. Just please come to school with me. I, as a good brother, as a good sister, I'm trying to beg you, not because of my, 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 my obedience or because I'm so great. It's because don't you know what they think, what mom thinks, what dad thinks, that we're in the family of God as a brother, as a sister. I implore you on behalf of our parents to do what they say. We're not free to be ourselves. And that is actually not true freedom. The Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, that's liberty. 
actual freedom is walking in steps of your creator. Why would you want to create your own blueprint when the master has created a blueprint? So the reality is we, we, you don't actually value people if you let them wander in sin. Now that's a, that is a, this is why I said it's, it's a grown full conversation because you, 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 you cannot be involved in the lives of people and be uninformed and not be prayerful and not be grateful. And the reason why you've got to be grateful to the Lord is because the minute you start talking to people about sin, you go, you, you better hold on to his unchanging hand at that point, right? That you in ministry now, right? And I believe that, there, I, I honestly believe there's a distinction in the body of Christ of those that like to, the, again, you like the warmth of unity and there's others who build the fire of unity. Listen, you want to really value someone? Pay the price. Unity comes at a cost. True unity comes at a cost. It's the cost of conversations. It's the cost of text messages. It's the cost of following up. It's the cost of making sure, are we all right? It's the cost of sending another email. It's the cost of having another conversation and another conversation and another conversation. And it's opening up the word. And once you've paid that cost, you can be reminded of the cost of Christ who died on the cross for our sin so that we might be set free with true freedom. Well, that, that is just the first step. Jesus would say that there's a good chance that this person doesn't even listen to that. That you've gone privately. And now, he says in Matthew 18, 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. One of the things that you have to keep in mind is that this text is taken from Deuteronomy 19.15, or it mimics it. It's also referenced as well in 2 Timothy. Um, the text here is taken out of the context of uh, civil, civil um, like almost civil laws um, in the Bible, because there, for the most part, weren't courts. And even in the day of the Romans, they wouldn't necessarily go to court. So if there was a disagreement and I accused you of something, they took, so Jesus takes directly from how they dealt with civil disagreements and adjudicated them and said, listen, let's have a conversation. But if you don't hear me, let's bring two or three. Why are two or three important? Because the verification of a fact was based upon having confirming witnesses. Now, why is that important? Because we tend to see verification based upon the person's personality. So that person has been faithful or we like them. And so the minute that they tell us that something happened, we believe it as fully true simply because of their aura or their personality. But the Bible doesn't allow us to give room just to based, based upon my credibility. It actually says we must have confirmation of two or three. That's how you establish a fact. And one of the things that I think is 
just so important that we feel the weight of, right? That we feel the weight of is what Jesus continues to say again and again is if he doesn't listen, if he doesn't listen a third time, if he doesn't listen. What's happened in this conversation is that it's been elevated and now there's a person who has said something that hurt you or they're saying things that hurt people and you've gone to them privately and you said, hey, you are saying things that hurt people and the person doesn't listen. Then you set up another meeting and note that it doesn't say you send two people, it says you go with them. Now that's distinctly important because it's not that you're gonna allow them to now have a new conversation or bring a new story. You're gonna be there to confirm how the first conversation went, right? So now you've got two and three and we're all there and we're confirming what a person says. But let me, let me give you the heart of what this passage is getting at. Note that it continues to say if he doesn't listen. It doesn't actually say if he doesn't obey. And I think there's a really important point in that. There are times when I think you're sinning and I could get it wrong. There are times when we have different perspectives and we need to talk it out. The essence of this passage isn't just in the obedience, although it oftentimes could be, but it is in the posture of the one listening and taking in about their faults. When you elevate the conversation, it gives us this reality that the person now needs to listen, but you have two people there to look at their conduct while the conversation is happening. This for is not just for those, this point is not just for those who are pursuing someone, but I, but I want to note for those who are being pursued. In other words, how you respond to a rebuke being slow to speak and quick to listen. This is the essence of being able to build unity in a marriage, in a church, being able to listen and hear the person's perspective. Dr. John Gottman, um, he has the, what's called the Gottman Institute. And he talks about what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but another way to put it is the four negative conflict responses. And he says, you can see these. He's got years of videotape of people responding negatively to conflict. And he says, you can actually tell when these are present, a person will either be unhappy or divorced in the relationship. He says that uh, the, the four horsemen of, of the apocalypse, he calls it, or four negative conflict responses are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. When he says criticism, it essentially means I begin to criticize the, accus the accuser's motives. And the minute that I hear about it is, well, you're just saying that because you just, well, you, well, of course you wouldn't. And all of a sudden you just begin to criticize. You're not listening. Or you have contempt. And so there's, you believe that you're above all that. How could you, I mean, you, I mean, who are you to think that you could talk to me that way? Or you become defensive and now you're the victim. And all oh, well, people always say, you know what? You didn't like me in the first, but you know what? You're just, people are always like this and you become super defensive. Or fourthly, you stonewall. And, and stonewalling is a unique art form of silence and acting like you agree. But the whole time, people in the room know your energy is indicating you are not bought into the conversation. 
These are indications that you were not listening. And, and the heartbeat of this text is that we are to listen when people have a difference with us. And for those of us that are elevating this conversation, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the person to listen. Once we get to this point where we have to elevate this conversation, where we have to bring two or three others who we believe are spiritual and can handle a nuanced conversation, and the person refuses to listen, this now, the next part, is an indication that the church has a unique role on earth. It says in Matthew 18, verse 17 and 18, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. A very distinct dynamic here is no longer is Jesus using numbers. He doesn't say two or three. He just says church. Now note in Matthew, this is the second time he's used the word church. The first time is when he's talking to Peter and he says, upon this rock, I shall build my church, the, the ecclesia, the called out ones. But now the second time he's used it is saying, if he doesn't listen to the church, this presumes the authoritative dynamic of the church. Um, I was speaking to a young lady and she says, I don't go to church. I got church with my friends. I said, interesting. Um, so do y'all preach? Or, well, we watch a preacher. Very good. Hey, I'm not going. Hey, do what you want. There's a lot of people who are hurting right now, and some people can't go to church because a church hurt, or they're frustrated, or maybe they have social anxiety. But, but actually, I don't think that's what it is with you. I just think you distinctly don't want church because you've you don't believe in the organizational side of it. It's like, yeah, I don't like organized religion. I just don't like none of that. And this is one of the dynamics of an organized church. Because now we're talking about authority. Now we're not saying that you're just bringing around people who can look into this project called investigating where a person's at. But this is now dealing with the authoritative nature of the church. And this is why someone is a part of a church. Because you believe you want to live under the authority of leadership. You just don't want to hang out with Christian friends. You feel like you need Christian leadership. You actually think, I could be one of those sheep that wander. Yeah. There is a humility about being a part of a church versus just watching a preacher online. But the reality is, in here, in the text, he says, if, there were, if you were to bring it to the church, and, and from a practical dynamic, um, because the church was such a small entity at this time, you would more likely than not just bring this before the people that were involved in the issue. Um, because the church was so small, they could maybe bring it before everyone. But in a larger church, you probably would only involve the people that were uh, involved with the individual. But if the person had an elevated position, if they were a leader, then you would probably need to inform more people. But he says, bring it before the church, all the people who are relevant to the situation, and what you're doing with them is you are helping them to see that this person is not in step with the Lord. This person refuses to listen. And so he says, 
Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Understand in context there that the Gentile was a person who was presumed to be outside of the um, realm of the church, the authority of the church, that they lived however they wanted. And then the tax collector was someone who they socially rejected. With those two in mind, what Jesus is saying is, for the person that is wandering in sin, there's two things that we have to consider doing. We have to acknowledge that their life is not in line with our faith. Secondly, we cannot give them the kind of intimacy we once had. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul would speak to the uh, brother who was in sin. And he says that the brother is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a violer, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And, but it's, you got to understand hospitality at that time was a deep, intimate thing. And so in some ways that we have to consider that if there is someone that we've gone to, if there's someone that we've made aware through having some kind of mediation, if we've let leadership know and they've tried to communicate with them, that there comes a point that we have to, in some ways, break fellowship with them, not for the sake of hurting their feelings, but trying to get them back in step with the Lord. Because they no longer are living in obedience, and they're not living in fellowship. Here, we have such a deep, deep text of what we want to do in the body of Christ and how we want to heal people and love people. It's through confronting them in sin. It's through dealing with where they are. This is how true unity happens, the unity that God agrees with. Well, some of you may say, well, listen, pastor, I get all that. That's, that's for y'all. That's for y'all to do. That's, you know, y'all, you pastor, you do, the pa- pastor confront people. Well, I don't do that. I like to get chicken and, you know, rice and go to sushi and hang out with people, right? You define fellowship by hanging out. And here's what Jesus says to cap our minds, to, to in some ways define who we are. He says, I tell you, I'm just going to tell you this, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And what he is saying there, this idea of binding and loosing shows the authority of the church. This uh, binding would be to prevent or to stop. Loosing would be to release or let go or to allow. And what he is indicating here is When you read it, it could seem like whatever is happening on earth, God will duplicate in heaven. But that's not, in essence, what it's getting at. What it's saying is, whatever you do on earth is an indication of what happens in heaven. When you allow people to live however they, because notice what the text says, whatever. Whatever you bind, whatever you loose, whatever you're doing, you're giving an indication of what God allows and what God binds. The authority of the church is that we are the representatives of the king and we live with his authority so much so that whatever we bind, whatever we lose, when we allow there to be gossip or sexual immorality, people presume that's what God thinks. They think that's God's heart. So what we bind and what we lose 
people presume is being duplicated in heaven. And in essence, he's saying that's the authority that we operate with. And if you have the spirit of God within you, then you are part of that authoritative call. This binding and loosing is a divinely delegated authority. When we create this unity amongst us, it gets us all within the heart of God. But in verse 19 and 20, Jesus says something. He says again. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Then he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And what... The key is when he says, in my name, that when we are agreeing with one another and we have come to the conclusion that God agrees with us, that the revealed mind of God is in agreement with us and we are in agreement with one another, that is when the exponential power of God is poured out on us. He says, I am in the midst. My presence is made perfect. There's a sense in which that God will lay down an element of his, his presence and his power. He will resource those in a unique way that are in line with his word and in agreement with one another. The question that we have to ask then is does God agree? In a marriage, you do a budget. You get done with the budget. And you say, do we agree? But the real leader says, does God agree? When you, in a church, you're creating a program and you're doing great things in the city and you might even do something that the city loves, everybody in the city is like, yeah. Do you agree? Everybody says, yeah, we agree. But does God agree? We don't have consensus in this church if God doesn't agree. But when we do agree with one another, when we do the hard work of agreement, and we do the hard work of making sure God agrees with us, then cities are changed, and chains are broken, and lives will never be the same. Whatever you do, in the name of Jesus. Don't do it simply because everybody said it's good. It's not good until you're sure that the revealed mind of God says it's good and until he agrees. Father, we thank you for the joy of your word and the power of your word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the beauty of seeing unity, but a unity, God, that only comes from you. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would, in your own way, make sure that we are in step with you. Father, we pray for those who uh, need to listen, 
but we pray for those who need to confront. We pray, Holy Spirit, that even now, for for those that help create unity in our midst, we pray that you would give them the courage to go again and again and again and have a conversation again and again and again. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray for those who have had to sit and listen and don't want to listen again. God, I pray that you'd give them humility to listen again and again. And God, I pray that in our midst, we don't just have a unity that feels warm, but we pray that the heat and the power of the Holy Spirit is what warms us, that we are unified in you, that we have a holy intimacy. And when we do that, the city will never be the same. In Christ's name. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.